From the crossroads of America in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is Get In, the show focused on the unfolding stories and most extraordinary innovations happening in the heartland today. Today's guest is Julie Heath, who's the VP of Entrepreneurial Ecosystems for the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, or IEDC. You may hear us saying IEDC on the show today. Moving to Indiana, what, what do I need to know? You don't want to be my only friend. How do I, right. <laughs> how do I fix that? He told me to join the speakeasy, and I thought, I'm joining a bar. I like Indiana already. <laughs> she focuses on removing barriers to entrepreneurship by creating a shared economy of supportive connections, accessible resources, and know-how. Prior to that, she was the executive director at The Speakeasy, a 501c3 nonprofit in Indiana's first collaborative workspace. The Speakeasy helped lower barriers to entry and continues to do It is still very much a vibrant community. It has lowered the barrier of entry to entrepreneurship through community building and a shared economy of knowledge, social capital, and affordable space. Prior to that, she was a VP of Customer Success at Portable, a longtime Powder Keg member after transitioning from a career in the museum and arts sector. She holds a bachelor's degree from UC Davis in studio art and economics, as well as a master's degree in painting from the University of New Hampshire. We're so excited to have her on the show today. Julie, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. We're pumped. I'm totally stoked. Julie is like a total rock star in the Indiana entrepreneurial ecosystem at IEDC, but I'm super excited to hear about her background. Me too. Me too. And I will actually add, also a superstar nationally. Have been able to plug into some of the events that you've hosted, Julie, and seen some of the people that you've pulled from around the country to be here in Indiana, people building ecosystems around the country. So I'm excited to talk about all of that today. Me too. All right, let's dive in. I'd love to start just early on. I know that you grew up in the Bay Area, San Francisco area. Tell me a little bit about that. What was that like? Yeah, growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area was fantastic. It's, I think I was the beneficiary of Silicon Valley and everything that happened in terms of entrepreneurship and wealth creation in the 1980s, 1990s. I think one really important ingredient that is left out of the Silicon Valley story is the cost of living of the Bay Area in the 80s. So in the early 80s, your entry-level librarian, your entry-level firefighter could still buy a house and have a 10-minute commute to work. Yep. For some reason, we have lost that piece of the puzzle in telling why the Silicon Valley is the Silicon Valley, and yet we still have that here in Indiana. A lot of Indiana is at a cost of living where you can still have your entry-level public servants affording to buy a house and have a 10-minute commute to work, which also helps entrepreneurs especially in terms of their runway and the process of affording starting a company. Do you have some early memories of kind of that childhood and brushing up against the tech industry? Yeah, probably was most obvious in high school. I feel like all of my classmates were headed to either UC Berkeley or Stanford. That seemed to be the big debate. And most of their parents were in tech or had started companies. And so it was just in in the culture. It was absolutely ingrained in the day-to-day. Were your parents in tech? No, mine were of the public servant variety, meaning my father was a captain in the Oakland Fire Department, which is how I know about how public servants were able to afford houses in the early 80s in the Bay Area. And it, it seems to me critical because you need to be able to have a healthy society with all its contributors in order to have a healthy ecosystem. So I think, it's, I think cost of living and how it affects different people in our society is an important part of this topic. So in, when you were in the household then, 
when did you first hear this idea called entrepreneurship, like in, in high school? Did your friends talk about it? Or when you went to visit their homes, did their parents talk about tech? How did you start thinking about those things? Or did you? I, you know, I, I don't think I did. It was there. It just seemed it was always there. I don't remember learning about it yep. because I remember the, the, the Netscape era and IPOs, and I remember Apple going through its permutations, but I don't remember learning about it. It feels like it was always there. Just ingrained in the culture. Yeah, that's right. Was there a disparity between like your parents, your dad was a firefighter versus mm-hmm. my dad works at a tech company or my dad works at Apple? Was that like part of the... The high school, I know high schoolers can be mean. Was that part of your growing up? No, I, you know, I didn't notice it. I think I noticed it in college because then all of a sudden you had a whole bunch of students coming from Cupertino and they were driving their very fancy cars. <laughs> That's when I remember it at UC Davis is which kids came from that part of the Silicon Valley. <laughs> My first car, by the way, cost me $150 and it was a Dodge Charger. Nice. Hey, yo. That's 1976. Amazing. Mine is a VW Bug, bright orange. <laughs> That's cool. amazing. Yes. Mine was Dodge Intrepid. What was yours? I had a Pontiac G6. I had just watched the Fast and Furious uh-huh. series, and I like totally decked it out and what I thought was decked out, and looking back, terrible car. It's <laughs> <That's> awesome. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your first professional job. Can you bridge the gap of how you went from growing up in the Bay Area to then going into economics and yeah. art? Yeah, I was an entrepreneur at the Smithsonian. I love that. <laughs> I don't know if that was a bridge or not, but that's where I started. That's a great bridge. Yeah. 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 So um, I studied both economics and art. I was, I went to grad school. I figured I was going to get an MBA or an MFA, landed on the MFA because I got a scholarship. <laughs> so all, yep. that shows for me. Scholarships I went to the, help. Yeah. I went to the East Coast because I figured it's an opportunity for growth. So I better go and do something I haven't done before. Ended up in New England, and then my my then boyfriend, now husband, was a scientist, so he had all the job offers. <laughs> and being in the arts, you go where the job is, and there's no backup. There's no second place for not getting that art professor job, which is the career I was angling for. And it's not like you they pay off half your loans and say, here, teach a class. No, you're, <laughs> you either win or you don't. I ended up applying to every single school in the Washington, D.C. area, every college, every private high school, because I had all the material put together, my students' material, my own portfolio. And that's because my husband was accepting a job down in Washington, D.C. So I ended up picking up a paid internship at the Smithsonian and also an adjunct teaching position. So between the two, piecemealed it together. That's really cool. Yeah. I would imagine you probably learned some things about entrepreneurship at a, in an institution like the Smithsonian. What were some of the bigger takeaways that you still see applicable to the work that you're doing today? Yeah, that's a great question. Because it quite literally is all the factors and actors that enable you to do something new. Mm-hmm. That is the definition of ecosystem, factors and actors and the relationships between them. So with a huge bureaucracy like the Smithsonian, which is a quasi-federal government agency, you have to figure out who's interested in coming to the table and figuring out how we're going to do this. So you have that North Star. So one of them for us was opening a new center called the Lunder Conservation Center. It was the art conservation laboratories, but made visible with glass walls. The idea being you can't be warm to a cause you don't know about. (laughs) So you better make it visible so people can care about it. And we put a lot of money into preserving our cultural treasures. So 
why not show all the science and investment that we spend Absolutely. on, on yeah. this, which is a parallel to entrepreneurship. If you're investing on the front end, <laughs> you're saying, hey, we're not doing this for right now. We're doing this for five or 10 years out or in, in cultural preservation, 100 years out, 500 years out. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Tell me about how you went from the nonprofit arts world and found your way into the intersection of nonprofit and for-profit. Yeah. So I, let's see, it was 2008. The economy was doing its toilet bowl spiral. And Was that scary? No, because I had an endowed position at the Smithsonian. That's, that's about a, a nice a situation job you can, have, you can yes. have. But I managed to scare my parents when I said, hey, I'm going to go take this new job. So my husband had gone up to get his PhD in Massachusetts. Cool. And so we were doing that long distance marriage and some couples can do it. We, I did not like doing the long distance marriage. That's challenging. Yeah. So I was applying to jobs, but during any recession, there, yeah, there's yeah. usually Tough. no jobs. Yeah. So there was this one that was posted from an advanced manufacturer, and they basically went to the distribution list where all the art conservators were looking for jobs. Now, I was not an art conservator, but I was working with them because of that new center. And they said, we're looking for someone from the museum world who can come and help us go to market. I don't think I even knew what go to market was at that point, but I thought, I know museums. I'll, I'll apply to this job. And I ended up getting it. And that was great because they said I could live wherever I wanted to live, Massachusetts, mm. as long as I lived near an airport because I was going to be on an airplane every week. And what do they manufacture? They advance its glass and acrylic with certain coatings that make the material behave differently. Is that the same company that you use at Smithsonian or is it a different company? We were buying their products. Got we it. were, as was the National Gallery and the British Museum. And that, that was the company's biggest problem is they knew that customers at these museums were using their product, but they couldn't get sales calls. So that's what we museums. call ideal customer profile and really dialing in on your target market. Okay. Someone who Absolutely. comes from the exact marketplace that you're trying to sell to. Smart. That's right. Like, that's awesome. Yeah. And so I thought, why not? It was the only, it was the only company hiring in <laughs> early 2009. Business lesson number one. If a company is hiring in the bottom of a reception, of a session, they have a healthy balance sheet. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was, then that was our deal. I said, look, I don't know the first thing about business, but I want to learn because I was going to get an MBA, but I didn't. So <laughs> this will be my applied MBA and I'll get you guys into whatever museum you want to get into. I love that. Yeah. That's really cool. I, I, through that whole process, I know you lived in a lot of different places, yeah. Bay Area, DC, Chicago, Philly. Yeah. What brought you to Indiana? And why have you stayed? Yeah. So let's see. It was Philadelphia that I was, I did a nonprofit turnaround combining that for-profit know-how and the nonprofit know-how uh, in in Philadelphia at a small 501c3. And my husband was then finishing up his PhD and he was an immunologist. And so he was applying for postdocs all over the country. And when you're applying for a postdoc in the sciences at a company, they'll fly you out have you talked to 374 people? And then you come back a day or two later. And he had been doing a lot of these interviews in San Diego and New York. Came back from this one. I lost track. He came back from this one and he was excited. Like I could just tell his energy level was up. And I thought, okay, where was this one? It sounds like this is a winner. And I was just finishing up that, that work with that Philadelphia nonprofit. And they were in a much better position. So I felt, okay, I can hand this off now. And he said, Eli Lilly. I thought, okay. Where's that? <laughs> so, <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. That's great. Looked it up. 
was in Indiana. And Eli Lilly is the number two exporter of life sciences in the world, I believe it is. Good place and for a postdoc. They hold one of the highest number of patents of any company uh, in their competitive set. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. We should probably get someone from their innovation department on the yes. show at some point. Ooh. That'd be yes. cool. That'd be a yep. great idea. Yeah. Let's do that. That'd be awesome. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. What was your first impression of Indiana? Let's see. I immediately, as he was accepting the position, I went through my address book because my entire professional network was on your the what? East Coast. Address book, you know, the, on the phone. <laughs> it was on the phone. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Contacts. Typed in Indiana. What? <laughs> one, one person showed up. It was Richard McCoy, who's now at uh, Exhibit Columbus. Yeah. And uh, called him up because we had, let's see, he had been at the Indianapolis Museum of Art as an objects conservator when I was at Smithsonian. And we met at the Mellon Foundation at some program seven years earlier. But it's a small enough world where you yep. can call someone after seven years and say, Hey, how you doing? <laughs> so I said, yeah, moving to Indiana. What do I need to know? You don't want to be my only friend. How do I, yeah, <laughs> how no. do I fix that? He told me to join the speakeasy. And I thought I'm joining a bar. I like Indiana already. <laughs> <laughs> That's hysterical. That's <laughs> incredible, right? That someone who's in the museum sector yeah. and the first thing that they recommend is the speakeasy, which is involved in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. That's right. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. First co-working space, at least in Indianapolis, maybe the state. Yeah specifically for entrepreneurs yeah. right yeah and that's what he said because he asked what do you want to do and i said i don't know yet oh you, i want to do go to market for somebody right yeah <laughs> did that <laughs> so he said well, go to the speakeasy because there's a lot of people launching cool things so at least you'll get to talk to a lot of good people that is awesome i love it yeah and that's how i that's how i found the boardable folk i i just started talking to a whole bunch of speakeasy members and eventually got connected with andy and jeb that's a beautiful example of the home of the one degree separation, right? Yeah. Here in Indiana, you can quickly connect to relevant things that are fulfilling, whether it's personal or professional. That's it's right. awesome. Quick break from our normal programming. I have Erica Schweier, COO from Elevate Ventures here in the studio today. Erica, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And you're going to tell us a little bit about this Rally Innovation Conference that's coming up. Yep. So it's the largest cross-sector innovation conference in the world. We're going to feature six innovation studios. So think hard tech, software, sports tech, ag and food, healthcare, and entrepreneurship is going to kind of be our catch-all. I love that. So tell me what is, who's it for? Yeah, it's for innovators, entrepreneurs, investors. Honestly, anybody probably listening to this podcast. It's going to be a multi-day thing that's multi-day. happening in downtown Indianapolis. Yep. People coming in from all over the country and maybe even all over the world to be here. That's our hope. Yep. And the dates are actually August 29th to the 31st. Perfect. And if people want to find out more information about speakers, tickets, things like that, where can they go? Yeah. So they just go to rallyinnovation.com and sign up for communications. They can also get their tickets. I love it. You heard it here at rallyinnovation.com. We'll, we'll see, see you, you there. there. I remember those days, Julian. I remember when you first moved to town because everyone was recommending we get connected. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are. Yeah, and here we are. Here we are connected. How did you actually end up working with the Speakeasy? Because I know you originally got connected with, with Portable right. and had a chance to jump into a startup yeah, at, which is a, at fantastic. the very early stages. So maybe let's slow down and talk about that experience because I would imagine that was a very different culture and environment than right. the Smithsonian and some of the museum and arts work that you had done. Yeah, because if you think of the quadrants of the professional world with for-profit on one side and nonprofit on the other and large organizations and small I had been in the other three. Yeah. But I hadn't been in a small startup. So that was new. And 
I joined when there were zero paying customers. So going from zero paying customers to that first customer, second, 10th, 20th. A white knuckle moment. (laughs) Here we go. Hold on. It was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. And I think Joe Downey, the developer, one of the founders, and I were the only full-time people. So I was the first employee who was not a founder. And being able to be in, in those trenches, figuring out, all right, how do we build this thing? Um, it turned out to be fantastic in that our customers were nonprofit executives. Mm. And I, I turned around on nonprofits, so I understood what it was. I knew the problem set. I understood what unmet need we were meeting. And so that was a really important part of understanding both customer discovery and building out the product roadmap at the same time. But yeah, on that customer segment, all customer segments are different. Mm. And so understanding their language and how they think, how they talk, what that business case is in that environment. Right? Yeah, All that's very right. Different. Listening that's awesome. between the lines to the, yes. those pain points. Yes, right. absolutely. This, this is a really cool example of crossing over from non-tech into tech, which right. is a question we get a lot at Powder Keg. We've got a lot of people who are experienced in their careers, and they're looking to plug into a job in tech, in innovation. And I think what's really neat about how you found your door into the industry is you found a tech company, a SaaS company, that was focused on what you were focused on serving the customer that you had been for many years and had institutional knowledge in. Very similar to how Nate broke into the industry because he came from a benefits company where he had been an OR fellow for two years. So working in HR, then moving to an HR tech company, which I would put powder kegs in that Venn diagram, at least that's a part of our mix. So that's really cool that you're able to navigate that. Yeah. And it's probably worth, worth highlighting there that if you understand the pain points of a certain set of professionals, you probably have a place at a startup. Yeah. At this point, let's double click. That's the old phrase, right? Double click. Yep. In their commercial, it has. I don't know. Click don't ask me. I said address book. And so, <laughs> this is such a this is an imperative, I think, for people to realize. There's a lot of folks out there, and I talked to my son's friends. Right, he's 15, and they have this perception that to be in tech, you have to be a developer. You have to understand how to manage complex data sets and all this, put fingertips on keyboards and write code. But there, that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? In right. tech and startups and tech-enabled companies and having these other skill sets, customer success, sales, product might be, right? What did, were you nervous, scared? Were you like, okay, I'm doing something totally different. I've been in museum curation, protecting these incredible assets for thousands of years in the future. Then you worked for a manufacturer who, who built the products. Very that, fancy glass. Very yeah. fancy glass. <laughs> now you're going to jump off this crazy cliff into the abyss of a zero revenue, pre-revenue company, no customers. What was that like? It was like the rest of Or do of you my, know how to code? It, it was, yeah, no, I don't know how to code. And <laughs> it was like every other step of the career, I think. And you only get this with hindsight, right? If I look backwards at my career, every chapter was an example of something that hadn't been done before. Yep. So at Smithsonian, first it was launching a distance learning program that hadn't been done before. Launching this new conservation center hadn't been done before. Going over, working on this, for this advanced manufacturer on this go-to-market method, that hadn't been done before in, in the way we did it. So Julie is an early adopter. Absolutely. <laughs> I love it. In my career. I like yeah. it. Yeah, so that, that didn't feel any different. It, it certainly had... A whole bunch of new jargon that I've had to learn. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's good for us too, especially when it comes to innovation. You mentioned learning the jargon in software and in tech. What kind of advice do you have for people who are looking to break into tech and maybe even building their network for the 
the first time right. in a new industry, whether that's straight out of college or not even college, or it's crossing over from another industry. What were some of the things that you did? Yeah, and I'll even go deeper, right? You show up at the speakeasy right. day one, not technically an entrepreneur, no background in tech. Everyone's, what are you working on? What are you building? What was your pitch? What did you say? I think I said, I'm just looking to get connected here, which I didn't realize was a powerful thing to say. Yeah. Because I think we know now with the power of weak ties in career paths, it's really important to understand that if you are meeting someone new, then you are expanding your network. So if you are only talking, this is my advice. If you're only talking to people you already know, you're not doing yourself any favors. Mm -hmm. You got to go and meet new people because every time you meet someone new, you're meeting their entire network. And there's social researchers who can cite the Dunbar number and explain why that's so powerful mathematically. But we've had that proven out now in terms of career paths where if you can go and show up at the speakeasy or show up at some other center of gravity and talk to someone new, that's the best thing you can do for yourself. Amen and hallelujah. <laughs> as you're having these connections, was there anything that you did during those conversations or even as a follow-up that you think helped turn those not just into connections, but real professional relationships? Yeah. Um, I would keep going back. So I joined the speakeasy so that I could show up on any given day or week and pick up a conversation. So if I met you last week, I'm going to remember your name and we say, Hey, you mentioned you were working on this new podcast. How's it going? Did you, how'd that last interview go? If you remember someone's name, you keep going back. I think that's probably the best thing you can do. It's a little bit different from traditional networking in terms of thinking, I'm going to go to this one-off event. That doesn't, that's not as important as going back and mm-hmm. then and it's much more natural right that's right you're going to a place where people want to meet collaborate communicate that's right much more natural right. it's almost like the difference between a networking event and joining a community that's right, right. Yes. you joined and you showed up that's right and you put in the work because yeah. you have to remember all these names that's powerful and remember what people are doing and what they're interested in because mm-hmm. yep. if i can remember that then we're going to have a conversation what if somebody's terrified what if what if we have listened if someone's listening right now yeah and they're like Oh my gosh, she's so brave. There's no way I could ever walk into the speakeasy and say, hi, my name is Toaf and I'm just here to meet people. What if they're terrified of that? Um, well, hopefully there's a community manager. <laughs> usually, usually there's someone whose job it is to at least welcome you and introduce you to that first person. Yep. That and people usually don't mind if you come up and introduce yourself. Totally agree. It's, totally agree. It's, if you think about that, there's two people. I might be frightened to go up and introduce myself, but the person on the other side of that isn't going to, isn't going to think that's weird. They're, they put their pants on the morning, just like we all do. And they're right? going to be like, Hey, great to meet you. And then they're going to think, Oh my goodness, you have initiative going up and introducing yourself. Yep. It's a good thing. Yep. Is there a way your community building slash networking skills have evolved with technology? Are there things that you're doing, whether it be LinkedIn, email, social media that you're doing that it's helped build community? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question, by the way. I say, have you two met? It's like my favorite phrase on the planet. Have you two met? Because A, I don't have to remember your names if I've forgotten them. (laughs) (laughs) That's a pro tip. Uh, Right? That's a pro tip. And also... If I've remembered something By about the way, one Julie of you. did that once a couple of months ago to me. She said, hey, have you two met? <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> what was your name again? <laughs> I love that. 
That's a, it's the number one thing. And, and I recommend it at, especially at events where you yeah. see that person, you're like, Oh yeah, I know we know each other. How do we know each other? <laughs> and I remember something about what you're doing. And, and what's great is you can just introduce someone else based on that little tidbit. I love it's it. It's a new CEO of Elevate Ventures. Have you met? I love it. That's yeah. a great tip. I just made an intro to Tof yesterday. Yes. Re-intro. Tof knows yep. everybody. Yep. But that was great. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it works in person. And to answer your question, it also works on LinkedIn. Yeah. You can put two people on a message. Have yeah. you two met? I think you might be interested in talking to each other. Shameless plug or on Powder Keg. There you go. <laughs> what were some of the challenges at Speakeasy? Because by the time you were plugging in, it was an established organization yeah. and you had now experience working at a SaaS company from zero to... Right. Like there were 92 customers. When yeah, I left. that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. And the, so actually what had happened with the speakeasy is they had expanded. They mm -hmm. had their original location in South Broad Ripple and then they had brought on an additional location downtown. And it was, it was an interesting business model situation for a small nonprofit. Usually small nonprofits are filling a need that is a community or societal need, but with 501c3s, usually there's some type of business model failure. And that's really important to acknowledge because if there isn't business model failure, then you're a for-profit. But because 501c3s are solving for a societal need, you have to really get clear on what that thing is. And with the speakeasy, it is a shared economy of space and know-how. So you get the connections, you get that, we call it know-how via know-who. If you were stuck on something, I'd be like, I think one of these two might know how to help you yeah. get unstuck. What didn't work was having a very big footprint downtown, especially mm -hmm. when the big box store co-working organizations were moving in. Sure. If you're a mom and pop shop and the big box stores move in with a lot of out-of-state investors, your chances of survival are pretty low. So the board had brought me on to say, how do we navigate this? Yeah. How did you navigate it? Were there a couple of big lessons you learned? And Yeah. Yeah. The, I think the biggest lesson is you ask your community, why does this need to exist? And then you solve from there. Yeah. Or customers or yeah, fill in the blank. Yeah. Why does this need to exist? <laughs> what would we take away? Is there anything that if we took it away, it would be painful? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Those customer discovery questions. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it all comes back to customer discovery. Love to learn a little bit more about what you're doing now at the IEDC, Economic Development Corporation of Indiana. Yeah. In that transition, how, yeah. how did you transition into IEDC? Yeah. How, did, how did it come yeah. about? Let's see. So I had, in the course of working at the Speakeasy, I was seeing that a lot of new companies were being born and I could see that there were a whole bunch of new jobs that previously hadn't existed. So in the course of asking, why does this need to exist? I thought, we've got a bunch of anecdotes, but how do we put some numbers to this, some metrics? And so we started with the help of Mike Kelly at Developer Town. We started figuring out like, of the companies who've spent time at the speakeasy, where are they now? Like, where are they now in terms mm -hmm. of revenue, fundraise, hiring? So we started just counting employees. Here are, they, here are these new jobs that exist now that didn't exist before the speakeasy was in existence. And so I started um, adding up their revenue. We just did a sample set of about 50 companies, and their estimated aggregated revenue was over $100 million wow. as of 2018. And, wow. Um, hey, yo. Yeah, and there were like 923 jobs that had been created. And I didn't know what the labor income was associated with those jobs, but I thought that's a lot of money. Yeah. And there's probably a lot of income tax revenue yep. coming back from those jobs that didn't exist yesterday, but now exist and will exist tomorrow. 
So I started doing some searching about who else was thinking about community well-being through economic health, specifically around entrepreneurship, and I found the Kauffman Foundation. So I went out to Kansas City for the conference that's called the eShip Summit that ran from 2017 to 2020 and got to meet 400 others who, like me, were very interested in this idea of community well-being through economic health specific to entrepreneurship. Yeah, so that's where the data started to come in. Kauffman Foundation is one of those entities that is just incredible, based in the Midwest as well, down in in Kansas City, and the ability to bring these community builders around the U.S. and beyond is really cool to see that kind of knowledge share. Yeah. So I came back from that summit in 2019 with all this new data because... It, it's very helpful, right? You have to have you have to have the stories to make the data interesting. Yep. But then you need the data to to prove that the stories are believable and effective. So I came back and I started doing debriefs just with anyone else who is interested in supporting entrepreneurs, all the other support organizations, and saying, "Here's what I learned. There's no point in it staying in my head. Here's what we know about the economic impact of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship." And I, at one point, I'd had the chance to share some of that with Dave Roberts over at the IEDC. And so the transition really happened because, man, are we lucky in Indiana. Our governor appointed an entrepreneur to be our Secretary of Commerce. Absolutely. (laughs) That changed everything. Yep. So Secretary Brad Chambers made entrepreneurship a priority. And Dave Roberts gave me a call and said, hey, can you come bring all your folders of data? And I think Brad gets paid 99 cents a year. That's right. And he says that publicly, so hopefully it's yeah, okay. That's right. <laughs> yeah, he's doing this, uh, to, yeah, to underscore that, he's doing this as a service project. Yes. He knows the power of starting a company from scratch, growing it up so it's a significant contributor to your local economy, and he says he wants to pay it forward for others who want to start companies. Understands the importance of place, too. Yeah. Which is pretty neat. Maybe we need to get Brad on the show at some time. Yeah, I think it sounds like a great idea. I do, too. Oh, I love that. Digging in at IEDC, what have been some of the most exciting projects that you've worked on and maybe are currently working on? Yeah. Okay. You ready? Hold on. Hold on, everybody. (laughs) Hold on to your hats and your seats. So this goes back to entrepreneurs and what we advise them, right? If you have 10 seconds in the elevator with someone, what do you say? The number one thing that we need to figure out is how do entrepreneurs impact our economic health as a state? There's one metric that everyone seems to understand, which is GDP. And so immediately started asking, how do we see our state's GDP that is contributed by our youngest companies? Mm. And so the most exciting moment of this year, of 2022, was when our friends over at IU's Business Research Center came back with basically a first pass. It looks like it was $11.5 billion in 2021. So $11.5 billion of our state's GDP was contributed by companies under five years of age. Wow. That's amazing. And that's a conservative estimate because that only counts young companies that have employees. So it doesn't include sole proprietors or those who haven't hired yet. So it's a conservative estimate. Wow. That's what I say in an elevator. If someone says, why is entrepreneurship powerful in terms of the state's economy? $11.5 billion in of, GDP. In 20, yeah, in 2021. Wow, that's yeah. incredible. Do you, have, do you have off the top of your head the state's GDP and like the biggest contributor? It's about that. Uh, the eleven point five billion is about three percent. So 3%. as a percentage, it's not huge, but it becomes powerful when you look at the research around how young, fast-growing companies 
are punching way above their weight class absolutely. in terms of productivity. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, what's one of the largest one? I think uh, manufacturing. It's manufacturing about a third. and life sciences is second. Is that right? No, I don't remember. Okay, yeah, but yeah, agreed. It's a, I love it looking at it through the lens of GDP. Yeah. That's amazing. How does someone plug in to the IEDC? I know there's a ton of programs right now that the state is running to even grow that 11.5 to an even bigger number. Yeah. What are some of those programs where people can plug in and right. find a way to contribute? Yeah. As of today, we've got one program right here <laughs> in terms of Elevate Ventures and another in terms of the small business development centers. Today, you can reach out to Elevate, you can reach out to SBDC and get help for the company you're starting. So those are the quickest ways. We're also working on a digital front door. The secretary has said, when I started my company, there was no single place to go where I knew I would find all of the resources and all of those organizations that support people who are starting companies. He said, I want us to have a digital front door where there's no wrong door after that. Yeah. So we're working on that. Very cool. Yeah. That's exciting. I love what Julie just said there. So the intentionality that, that Julie, IEDC, the state have aligns directly back to the Kaufman Foundation with their definitions of the tale of two entrepreneurs. So they talk about SMEs versus IDEs. So SME being small and medium enterprises aligns directly to the SBDC. And then the IDEs, the innovation driven enterprises align directly to, to what Elevate Ventures does. And so it's very intentional, right? And that's what I really love about what you've been doing there, Julie is the intentionality of direct connectivity, this digital front door concept is, makes it very efficient ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. And it taps into what I think might be the holy grail in terms of where we're gonna go. Just out at CES, I met Steve Case and got a copy of his Rise of the Rust book where Indianapolis is highlighted yeah. in terms of the exact target Salesforce story. And he talked about how do we think about the ecosystem work and how do we skate to where the puck will be? And mm -hmm. a big part of, I think, what we're doing right now around that intentionality is saying, here's why it matters. Here's how we're going to measure it. We're going we're gonna to tell some stories because <laughs> we have success stories hiding in plain sight all over this state in terms of people. And historically, creating. we've never talked about it. No. No, right? we've never talked about it. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, one of our, one of our stories, so I'm over here looking at this, we call it internally the yearbook. It's called Entrepreneurship, Entrepreneurship Indiana 2022. It's an oversized magazine with a hundred stories, about 75 stories of entrepreneurs and another 25 of the organizations and the people who support entrepreneurs. And I think, you know, what's beautiful is that when you are intentional and you say what is celebrated is emulated. And you say, we're going to create this artifact that has long shelf life that, that can yes. be handed from one person to another. And you're intentional about making sure you have a story from every corner of the state. And I can't remember. We have over 40 counties represented, I think, in these, in, in these stories. That gets people excited. Yes. And then so you combine the stories with the data. And at least then, if you have more than 10 seconds in the elevator, you can <laughs> dig in on yeah. the anecdotes of why it matters. Where does somebody get a copy of the yearbook? Yeah. Entrepreneurshipindiana.com. Yeah, you I can, love it. You can get a you can download a digital copy. I don't know if we have figured out how to distribute the hard copies. We just launched it during Global Entrepreneurship Week. Cool, I love it. Yeah. We'll we'll link that up in the show notes so we can Thank help you. share those stories because that's yeah. what this is all about, right? That's one hundred percent right. Yeah, and I don't know if we'll get there in terms of connectedness, but that's definitely something that if we look at the next year, 
what we're thinking about. What well, can you give us two minutes on local connectedness? Because yeah. uh, we're about to enter the lightning round, but I want to make sure yeah. we at least tease the local connectedness. And of course, we can have you back on the show later once yeah. once a lot of those things have been rolled out. Yeah, that'll be exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So what's given with entrepreneurship is that entrepreneurs are going to get stuck. When you haven't done something before, there's no blueprint. <laughs> that is inherent in the process. So what what we did when we started this work about a year ago was we decided to do an assessment of where we are. We didn't want to just benchmark against Ohio and Michigan. We wanted to know where Indiana was compared to Tel Aviv and Taipei City and Western Sweden. So we hired Startup Genome, which is a group that has assessed over 100 ecosystems in over 45 countries. So we like their global data set. And they worked with us and interviewed and surveyed a few hundred of our entrepreneurs, uh, our high-tech, high-growth entrepreneurs. And we got about 200 slides of findings. But there was one in particular that I was beyond excited about. And it's called local connectedness. Hmm. What it measures is how much help you can get from peers, like other founders, from investors, whether or not they've invested, experts, community members, this, this impulse toward helping each other. It's who's your hospitality, right? Who's your hospitality applied to entrepreneurship? Yeah. We know, we know it's strong. We know that. And real. And real. real. We know this just in terms of our culture here in the Midwest. What we didn't know until now is the impact of it. The impact of it is that it's a way for us to bet on all of our startups and the impact relates to revenue. So what they found is that the regions like ours, first of all, we're globally competitive. We are up there with Tel Aviv. We are up there with Taipei City. And that's pretty exciting to highlight. Yeah. The regions with the highest level of local connectedness accelerate all of their startups in quarterly revenue growth twice as fast as the regions with the lowest level of local connectedness. Think about that for a minute. We have a way intentionally to bet on all of our startups in terms of growing their revenue. That is the Holy grail. And the exponential factor of that is insane. Through the roof. Yep. That's amazing, Julie. I I love love it. it. Thank you for sharing that. That's really cool. I think we've got two more minutes. Two minutes. Lightning round. All right. We're here for the lightning round. We have four questions for you, Julie, that are going to really... Show what kind of Hoosier you are. Okay. All right. So we're going to start out. Outside of the amazing entrepreneurial ecosystem, what do you think Indiana is known for? That's related. That impulse toward neighborliness. Neighborliness. I love that. It's like we can measure it. Local connectedness. Yeah. I love it. All right. Favorite college in the state? Favorite college? I feel like I'm going to get in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) You got to pick one. You got to pick one. (laughs) Purdue. I went to University of California, Davis. <laughs> I have no favorites. I work for the state, sir. <laughs> I have no favorites. No favorites. Boo. Yeah, I okay. like it. Give us your hidden gem in Indiana. Hidden gem. I love the conservatory at the zoo mm-hmm. in the middle of January and February when it's been dark and cold for weeks and weeks. You can go inside there and feel like you're in a tropical forest. That is, that's good. Yeah, that does wonders. I love that. The conservatory at the zoo. All right. Final one. Ready? Who is someone that we need to keep on our radar? Someone who's doing big things. Present company excluded. (laughs) (laughs) Present company excluded. Mm -hmm. Bethany Hartley. 
up in Elkhart and South Bend. She's absolutely knocking it out of the park. Yeah, Founder Factory. She's incredible. Founder Factory. We just had Founder Factory as part of Global Entrepreneurship Week, and she and her team put together the most amazing lineup, including the head of Google for Startups, Jewel Burke-Solomon, and her partner from CoLab Capital. It was knock it out of the park successful and she not only had this phenomenal lineup and then had a whole bunch of small working group sessions so the entrepreneurs could get unstuck like in in the course of the conference she also invited about a hundred students 100 high school students to come in and hear from the speakers it was phenomenal i love that nice so we need you to give us one of those do you two know each other have you got have you two met and we'll get bethany on the show then perfect that's great thanks for being on the show yeah, this is wonderful. Great job, Julie. It was awesome. Yeah. Congratulations on your journey, your success. I love it. Yeah, takes the team. Can't wait to see what 2023 has in store. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I hear Indiana's a good place to start a company in 2023. Heck Absolutely. yeah. Number one. Yeah, go for it. Forbes. Check it out. There's a thing <laughs> called WWW. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Get In, a Powder Kick production in partnership with Elevate Ventures. And we want to hear from you. If you have suggestions for our guest or segment, reach out to Matt or Nate on LinkedIn or on email. To discover top-tier tech companies outside of Silicon Valley in hubs like Indiana, check out our newsletter at powderkeg.com newsletter. And to apply for membership to the Powderkeg executive community, check out powderkeg.com premium. We'll catch you next time and next week as we continue to help the world get in. Since you just listened to this podcast, you might be thinking about starting one for your company. Lucky for you, our partners over at Casted have you covered. Casted is the first and only podcast and video marketing platform made specifically for B2B brands. I love this about them. The platform makes it possible to publish, syndicate, amplify, and measure the value of your podcast and video content. In fact, we use it for our podcast here at Powder Keg. And if you're a startup, you should listen up because Casted for Startups is definitely for you. They are offering exclusive deep discounts of up to 82% off retail price for qualifying startups. Connect with Casted at casted.us slash powderkeg.